Let's turn our attention to the word this morning. We have been following the stories of Abraham's family, and we're now a couple generations removed from Abraham. We followed this family through their uh, adventures, through their journeys, through their ups, through their downs. Uh, and there's a reason why we're doing that. I'm, I'm not here. It's not my my intention uh, just to teach a good old history class on Sunday mornings. No, I think there's a much more important purpose in these sermons. The Bible says that God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham, and that as part of that covenant, God made promises to Abraham, and that those promises would be fulfilled in the lives of his heirs. Now, Abraham had biological heirs. There's a genealogy to Abraham, and that's kind of what we've been following. We followed the stories, for instance, of his son Isaac, and now his grandson Jacob is kind of the main character. Those are his biological heirs. But the Bible says that Abraham also has spiritual heirs, and that's really the intent and the purpose behind uh, the, the studies and the readings that we've been doing. The Bible says that we who have come to faith in Jesus, we are the spiritual heirs of the promises God made to Abraham. Those promises have become our inheritance because we have been grafted into Abraham's family tree. I showed you uh, a week ago this this family tree that I kind of drew up, and and this is kind of where we left off. This gives you a sense of of Abraham's family. You don't need to study it in detail. There's not going to be a quiz, Uh, but I like to see things visually. We can see there Abraham, and we can see his first uh, wife, Sarah. We can see Hagar, who he took uh, as as well. We can see their children. We can see Isaac, uh, the son given to Abraham and Sarah. We can see his wife, Rebecca, and we can see their twin boys who did not get along, as we know at this point, uh, Esau and Jacob. Now that's the family kind of as we left them a Sunday ago. Now I'm going to give you a spoiler alert, okay? I'm going to preach today's sermon backwards. I'm going to tell you the end before we get to the beginning. So, so full on spoiler alert. By the time we get done with the stories we're going to read today from Genesis chapter 29 and 30, by the time we get done, Here's what the family tree is going to look like. Robert, show us that next tree. The family's growing quickly. It's growing very, very quickly. By the end of today's reading, this family is going to be much more crowded. They're going to need card tables at Thanksgiving to put everybody together. They're going to need extra parking outside the front door. Uh, There's going to be a lot going on. Jacob, by the end of today's story, is going to be married. He's going to have 11 sons and one daughter with more babies to come later on in this story. He's actually going to have two wives. and and a couple of mistresses uh, beyond that. We can see the family growing and growing and growing. And I know it's weird because we tell these stories, you know, in church, in Bible, and we mention like polygamy, you know, and and like all of these other things. And we immediately, our antenna goes up because we know that's wrong, right? We know that's wrong. Uh, Remember, we're talking about an ancient people here who are living before God had given the law. And so the the focus and the purpose and the intent in the stories is not so much on the polygamy. We aren't excusing it. We're just saying that that's not the focus of the stories. It's just the Bible tells us what happened, right? This is what happened and this is what's going on. And so this this is 
This is what the family looks like. Now, you will probably remember that an important part of the promise that God had given Abraham is that his, he would have numerous descendants, that his family would number like the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. And as you look at this uh, family tree, you know, obviously we're, we're not there yet. But boy, we've taken some big steps, especially over the course of the chapters we're going to read today. We got from, you know, one or two children in a generation to all of a sudden there's 12 kids in this last generation. The family is growing. The family is blossoming. We, by the end of today's story, will have tangible evidence that God is working out his faithfulness in the life of Abraham's grandson. Jacob. To this point, we've talked about these promises and we've seen but little glimpses here and there, little, little tiny glimpses here and there. And I feel like the momentum is picking up. We're beginning to see more and more that God is doing just what he said he would do. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, people, because God is always faithful to his promises. So let's actually read the stories now and and see how it happened. When we left Jacob last week, it was at the end of chapter 28, and he was running away from his home for fear of his brother Esau. He had tricked Esau. Esau said, I'm going to kill him. 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 And Jacob said, well, that's my cue. I'm going to run away. But he wasn't just running aimlessly. He was on his way to the homeland of his extended family. He was going back to the land where his clan had come from, the place that Abraham, Grandpa Abraham, had moved away from all those years before. And the reason that Jacob was going back there, you might recall, is that Jacob was on a mission to find a wife as folks did in those days from his own ancestry, from his own clan. And so as we get to the opening lines of Genesis chapter 29, I'm not going to read them today. There's a lot. And so I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. We're told that Jacob arrived on his journey at a well where shepherds were gathering to water their flocks. And after asking around for a little bit, Jacob realized that he was actually very, very close to his uncle Laban's home. Uncle Laban was the brother of his his mom. It was Rebecca's brother. And so it was right about that moment, just as Jacob realized just how close he was, that Laban's daughter, Rachel, showed up to the well herself. And when Rachel showed up, Jacob was smitten. He was a smitten kitten, let me tell you. Okay, can we just get the ew out of the way? Yes, this was his cousin we're talking about. This was his cousin, but we're talking about ancient people, so we have to kind of get over ourselves over that, right? He sees Rachel, and he's just like, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And so he's like, hey, Rachel, how you doing, babe? And she totally goes for it. These two are just immediately in love. He introduces himself to Rachel, And he goes home with her. Uh, Her father, Laban, his uncle, says, come on, live as part of our household. I'm going to take you on. Uh, We work as shepherds. Jacob says, what a coincidence. My entire family is in the ranching business. And so he gets hired on with his uncle Laban as a shepherd. Uncle Laban wants to negotiate a salary for Jacob. And Jacob, he is so smitten with Rachel that he says, Uncle Laban, I got an idea. You don't need to give me a W-2. You don't need to pay me cash. Here's the deal. I'm going to work for you for seven years, free of charge. 
you know, keep me at home, support me, give me, give me room and board, but I'm going to work for you without salary for seven years. And at the end of seven years, I want your daughter. I want, I want you to let me marry Rachel. Laban says, free work for seven years. This is the best deal I've ever heard of. You've got it. You've got it. And so they, they agree on this plan. Jacob's going to work for his uncle as a shepherd for seven years. And at the end of seven years, he's going to be allowed to marry Rachel. Here's where I want to start actually reading the text. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 21. It says, finally, the time came for Jacob to marry Rachel. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Can we pause here for just a second? (laughs) On the off chance that we have any single guys in the room who are thinking of asking their girlfriend's father for her hand in marriage, this is probably not the line to go with. Right? Let's not copy what Jacob has done here. But but Jacob was kind of an upfront dude. And so that's the line that he went with. And so that's what he said. I'm going to continue reading here. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. But that night when it was dark, Laban took Rachel's older sister Leah to Jacob. And he slept with her. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? Now, we don't know for sure if it was too dark or if folks those days kept some more clothes and veils on or if Jacob was just plain all too drunk to know the difference. We honestly don't know which of those happened, but he went on his honeymoon with the wrong woman. When I uh, was being trained as a preacher, I was told that one of the most important things we need to do in our sermons is make sure that the congregation can identify with the message and that they have a connection point. So I feel like I need to ask, has anyone ever accidentally married their sister-in-law? No? Okay, okay. Well, in any case, did, did you catch that last line? Why have you tricked me? Do we appreciate the irony there (laughs) that Jacob, the liar, the cheat, is saying, you you tricked me. You see, Jacob had a reputation as a masterful liar and a cheater. But at the most important moment in his life, he finds himself to be the victim of the scam rather than the perpetrator. He may have been known in his own home as the con man, but he had met his match in Uncle Laban, hadn't he? And because of the scam, Jacob has lost out on what he had seen as the entire purpose of his journey and his work. Everything he had been working for, he lost out on it in one minute because somebody tricked him. He's been working for so hard, for so long, just for this moment. This is why he did it. And now all is lost. The Bible tells the story in a way that is very sympathetic towards Jacob, isn't it? Like, what was the point of all that work? Can you imagine how crushed he might be? Sometimes when we've been tricked, when we've been cheated, when we've been mistreated, when we've been taken advantage of, it can make us wonder if there's any reason to keep going on. We feel like we've lost out on everything. 
We're mad at whoever took advantage of us. We're mad at ourselves for being gullible. And sometimes we're mad at God for allowing it to happen. But the Bible teaches us that if we've been made alive in Jesus, there's no need to feel that way when we get taken advantage of. And that's because God is faithful to his promises even when we've been tricked. God is faithful even when I've been duped. God is faithful even when someone has taken advantage of me. You see, there are a lot of clever tricksters in the world, but none are clever enough to swindle God. Amen? And part of what happens when we give our lives to Jesus is that every blessing God has for us is no longer under my control. No, the blessings of God get stored up in heaven where they cannot be stolen and they cannot be destroyed. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, we have been born again and we have a priceless inheritance. That's what we've been talking about, right? Our inheritance. Our inheritance that is kept in heaven, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. You see, I can be tricked. I'm not the sharpest tool in the drawer. I can be tricked, but God cannot. God cannot be tricked. God cannot be duped. God cannot be taken advantage of. And so when I come to Christ Jesus, when I become an heir of the promise, the the promises themselves are kept under God's watchful care. So come at me. Trick me if you want. Dupe me. Take advantage of me. Use me. Scorn me. Do whatever you will to me. You're not going to take the promises of God in my life. You're not going to take the promises of God in my life because God is faithful to his promises even when we've been tricked. Consider the difference in the two stories of the two twin boys in our story, Esau and Jacob. Before they were born, we were told that Jacob would live as an heir to the promises of God, but Esau would not. We were told that before they were born. And so when Esau let his guard down, we read about it a couple of weeks ago, when he let his guard down, he got cheated out of everything. He lost it all, he never recovered, and he was never the same. But when the same thing happened to Jacob, God remained faithful to his promises. So Jacob prospered anyhow. Maybe you've been wounded by somebody clever enough to trick you. Maybe you feel betrayed by somebody you thought you could trust. Uh, Maybe you've been taken advantage of to the point that your life has literally been changed because of it. That's what happened to Jacob, right? His whole life was changed because of it. If that's you today, put your trust in Jesus and remind your heart today that because of his death and resurrection, your inheritance is in him. You, you can't lose it. You didn't lose it because you can't lose it. It's his. What God has promised will come to pass. The liars and the cheats will not have the final word in your life. And why? Say it with me, church, because you're an heir of the promise. That's right. Think about that for a moment. Well, I have a sip of water. God promised me some water and it cannot be cheating or stolen from me. Ah, much better. So we continue in chapter 29. We find that Jacob and Uncle Laban make a new deal. 
Since Jacob got cheated out of the first deal, he's really got no play other than to go back to Uncle Laban and make a new deal. Uncle Laban says he's going to let Jacob take Rachel as a second wife. He's already got Leah as a first wife. He says, okay, I know you wanted Rachel. I will let you have Rachel as a second wife as long as Jacob agrees to stay on and tend the sheep for another seven years. Oh my goodness, it's like going upside down in your mortgage, right? He's, he's got to stay on another seven years. Jacob agrees, and it's kind of a, oh, a meeting point here. Laban says, okay, but we'll, this time we won't wait seven years. We'll have the wedding first. And so a week after the first wedding, there's a second wedding. And this time, Jacob is marrying Rachel. This time, there's no surprises on the honeymoon. He's actually going to marry Rachel. Um, the Bible doesn't give the answer to this. I've always kind of wondered who the maid of honor was at that second wedding. Because it, it feels awkward to me. Am I wrong to feel that way? It feels awkward to me. So we have this, this second wedding. Jacob now has both wives, but he's now indentured to Laban. He has to work another seven years. And over the course of those seven years... Now that Jacob is married to the true love of his life, Rachel, they're going to face a very, very familiar problem, a problem that is very familiar in this story. We've read about it several times, infertility. Jacob's first wife, Leah, she has no problem conceiving. She has son after son after son after son. But Rachel simply could not get pregnant. You guys that have followed this story from the beginning, when we started reading these accounts of Abraham and his family months ago, you'll remember that Grandma Sarah had faced the same problem. You'll remember that Jacob's mother, Rebecca, had faced the same problem. And just like those two ladies, now Rachel is faced with infertility, and she's sad, and she's frustrated. But then, Rachel has an idea. Rachel thinks she can solve this problem, and it's an idea that is going to sound familiar to us because it's been part of this family's story before. Let me read it to you right from the text. Now reading from Genesis chapter 30, verse 3. Then Rachel told Jacob, Take my maid Bilhah and sleep with her. She will bear children for me, and through her I can have a family too. So Rachel gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob as a wife, and he slept with her. Bilhah became pregnant and presented him with a son. Oh, Jacob. Oh, Jacob, Jacob, Jacob. Uh, if we read on, you might find this interesting. The name of their son was Dan. <laughs> Two generations earlier, when Grandma Sarah had trouble conceiving, she gave her servant Hagar to Grandpa Abraham so they could conceive through her. Exact same problem, exact same plan. And, You'll remember what happened with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. The plan was successful. They did, in fact, have a boy, but everything else about it went very, very poorly. The family ended up divided. The family ended up broken. The rift between the two boys in that family, Isaac and Ishmael, that rift is one that literally continues even into present day. And here we are, just two generations after that mess, and we find Jacob and Rachel and they're ever so eager to make exactly the same mistake. And despite their foolishness, this is what I, 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 I don't want, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pile on Jacob and Rachel for making this mistake. 
What I find fascinating about this passage of scripture is that despite their foolishness, they still end up reaping the blessings of God. Do you remember I started by telling you by the end of this story, we're going to see an abundant blessing on Jacob and his family. The way we get there is mind boggling to me. It's mind boggling to me. Despite their foolishness, they still end up reaping the blessings of God. But there's a reason for that. And that's what the author of the text wants us to hear today. He wants us to know that God is faithful to his promises, even when we've acted foolishly. Aren't you glad for that? Even when I've acted like a dope, God is still as good as his word. Even when I've acted like a complete fool, even when I've made ridiculous decisions about what I think is in my best interest, even then, the gospel says, God is still faithful. Now, I'm not up here trying to discount sin, trying to discount foolishness. We've already been told time and time again that the responsibility of the heirs to the promise is to live in obedience to God, right? We know that this is important. I don't want to say that sin doesn't matter. I'm not trying to say that we don't have to do things the right way because God's on our side and he's going to bless us anyhow. I'm not trying to say that. Jacob and Rachel are going to be held responsible for their actions here. Their family, just like Grandpa Abraham's family, is going to be challenged by rivalry and division. All those half-brothers that you saw in the bottom row of the family tree at the beginning of the sermon today, they are not going to get along with each other very well. Things are going to be very, very difficult for this family, in large part because of the foolish choices they made along the way. But God is still going to be faithful to his promises. See, I don't think God is worried as we are about the mess that our lives are in. God knows our lives are a mess. He doesn't say, well, that one's too sticky for me. I'm going to just steer clear. God doesn't say, yuck, and walk away. No, God is faithful to his promises even when I've made a mess of things. We have the the students that study at Eagles Wing Learning Center here during the week. They take classes, they're homeschool students that that gather in our building, use our building, and take all kinds of different classes. Some of them take music classes. And so they learn to sing or play the piano, they play guitar, I think there's a couple of violin students. There's a variety of different music students. And sometimes when they're having their lessons, I'm working in my office and I can hear the music lesson going on down the hallway or they might be in here, wherever they are, I can hear the music lesson going on. You guys know that I was also trained as a musician, so my ear usually perks up. And I have to tell you that some of the students, some of the students that are taking music lessons are, are, I mean, they're just really, really bad. (laughs) I'm laughing because uh, one of our Eagles Wing teachers has visited us this morning. How are you doing, Becca? She's going to take this report back back to Eagles Wing. Uh, And I'm going to be in a little bit of trouble, but I just need to share with you some of these students. I mean, it's it's hard to listen to. It's hard to listen to. Now, in all fairness, they're like six years old. (laughs) And they can't even hold the guitar, right? Okay, so I'm being funny, right? I'm not really mad at them. It's just the way it works. The first time you sit down at a piano, like bad, bad things happen. You know, the first time you try and play a violin, it's not pleasant. 
Like these things don't go well. You have to learn as a musician to make a mess of things before you can ever make anything beautiful. And that's kind of where some of these students are. They're firmly entrenched in the mess stage. One of the things I enjoy about listening to their lessons, kind of overhearing them, is that one of the music teachers, uh, Michael, some of you know him, he's done ministry here before. Michael has, has, has kind of a method that he uses with the kids. He has them play their song, and then he'll get on the piano as well, or he'll get on the guitar, he'll get on another instrument. He's a brilliant musician, and he plays along with them. And as a musician, when I'm listening, I can tell that he's not just steamrolling over what they're doing, he's, he's dancing around it musically. He's supporting them, he's, he's accompanying them, he's playing them. And as he does that, these, these six-year-olds, these seven-year-olds, these eight-year-olds are going, oh, I'm the greatest musician there ever was. <laughs> this is awesome. They're creaking out some song in a voice that hasn't changed yet, and Michael's just singing a perfect harmony, and it sounds like angel music, right? And he's instilling them with confidence so that they can go, so that they can work. Here's, here's why I'm sharing that story with you. I feel like that's the way my life goes sometimes. You see, Michael's not, he's not telling them, be quiet, just let me make the music. He's allowing their mistakes to, to happen, but he's, he's turning them into something beautiful. He's turning them into something beautiful. What a great music teacher. He's turning them into something beautiful. You know, I've made more than my share of mistakes in my life. The gospel says God isn't here to pretend they didn't happen. The gospel says God's here to turn my life into something beautiful. Amen. Do you understand? Yes. He's playing along with me. He's making music out of the, the nonsense that I, I sometimes make in my life, out of the foolishness that I sometimes make in my life. The, the gospel, the Bible, the entire story of scripture is, is all about transformation. It's not about canceling, ignoring. God doesn't ignore sin. He deals with sin. Oh, if God ignored our sin, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? I don't want a Savior who ignores my sin because that's going to leave me in a world of hurt when the judgment day comes. I want a God who can transform my sin. The word, uh, the word of God in 1 John says, if we claim we have no sin, in other words, if we, if we ignore it, if we pretend it's not there, if we decide the best way is to overlook it, we are only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, in my illustration, if we sit at the, down at the piano and play the loudest wrong notes we possibly can, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. God is faithful to his promises even when we've acted foolishly. Followers of Jesus Christ, every one of us, we are fallen human beings. This side of heaven, we know that every one of us is still infected by the sin virus. Even though God is at work in our lives, we are nevertheless prone to act like fools. The hymn writer put it far more poetically, said, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. But we can live in this confidence. God's grace is greater than my sin. Nothing we can do can thwart the promises of God in our lives. And that's what grace looks like. As the years went by, Jacob's family grew. 
And eventually his commitment of seven more years to Laban was up and Jacob decided it was time to move back to his homeland. The problem was that for 14 years now, he had been working without a salary. He had been working just as a member of the household. And so Jacob didn't have any savings. He didn't have any finances. He didn't have any wealth of his home, of his own. And so he and Laban had to come up with another deal. Jacob and Laban come up with a plan to square things up before Jacob moves away. And the plan was this. The plan was that Jacob was going to go through Laban's flocks and Jacob was going to take all of the spotted lambs and goats for himself. He would leave the more valuable uh, ones of a solid color for Laban. But he said, in exchange for all of this work that I've done and the fact that you tricked me out of my first wife, uh, I'll take the spotted ones and those will be my herds and I can go home. Laban says, great idea. Sounds good. Let's do it that way. How many of us trust Laban? Good, you're smarter than Jacob. Because that very day, the Bible says, Laban sent word to his sons to take all the spotted sheep and goats out of the herd and move them far away and give them all to his sons. And so when Jacob showed up to claim the animals that would be his, there were none. Every animal in the herd was solid color and therefore couldn't be given to Jacob. So Jacob says, okay, here's what's going to happen now. I'll stay on a few more years, a few more seasons. And now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to collect any spotted animals that happen to get born from here on out. When they're born, I'll just take them and they'll be mine. And when I've got a herd or a flock of my own together, then I'll go. Now, Laban agrees to this probably because he thinks, man, I don't know how many spotted sheep are going to come from a herd full of solid colored sheep. So you do whatever you want to do, Jacob. Sounds great. Right? Laban agrees. That's the plan. Jacob has another plan though. And it's really, really weird. I want to read it to you. It's from Genesis chapter 30, beginning in verse 37. It says, then Jacob took some fresh branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees. And he peeled off strips of bark making white streaks on them. Then he placed these peeled branches in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, for that is where they mated. And when they mated in front of the white streaked branches, they gave birth to young that were streaked, speckled, and spotted. Let me skip down a few lines. It says, whenever the stronger females were ready to mate, Jacob would place all the peeled branches in the watering troughs in front of them. Then they would mate in front of the branches. But he didn't do this with the weaker ones. So the weaker lambs ended up belonging to Laban. And the stronger lambs belonged to Jacob. And here's the last verse in the story. As a result, Jacob became very wealthy with large flocks of speckled sheeps and goats. He had female and male servants and many camels and donkeys. Do you like that story? I was looking forward to reading that one to you today. Do you remember a few weeks ago when I told you the Bible is not a science book? This is one of the stories I had in mind, right? There is obviously no scientific basis to this story. Sheep who mate in front of branches with spots on them do not give birth to spotted lambs. That's not how it works. I've been to biology class. I know that. Now, apparently Jacob fancied himself quite the genetic engineer here. And amazingly enough, this is the surprise in the story, right? Amazingly enough, 
inexplicably, his plan worked. It worked, despite how ridiculous it was. You and I understand how absurd the entire situation is. So we chuckle at how bizarre Jacob's idea was. Nothing about it makes sense. But here's the point. Nothing made sense, and nevertheless, God came through for Jacob. Aren't you glad today that God is faithful to his promises, even when it doesn't make sense? Even when it doesn't make sense. You see, Jacob might have thought, he might have thought that the reason he was prospering was because of his clever idea to cause all these sheep to have spotted babies. But we know that in the natural, Jacob's actions don't make sense at all, and they have nothing to do with the result. How many of us know that God's faithfulness doesn't depend on our harebrained ideas, right? God isn't faithful because I had a good idea, (laughs) right? That's not why God is faithful. That's not how it works. One has nothing to do with the other. Patrick Mahomes is the all-star quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. If you're not a football fan, you still might know him from the State Farm commercials. He hangs around with Jake from State Farm. (laughs) Patrick Mahomes was drafted in 2017, and yes, the Bears could have taken him, but they traded up for Mitch Trubisky instead. Let's pause and pray about that one. Since 2017, when Patrick Mahomes was drafted, he's generally considered to be the best quarterback in football. He has thrown for more than 200 touchdowns. He's got more than 25,000 yards. In two different seasons, he's been named MVP of the entire league. He's won two Super Bowls, two Super Bowls, and got the MVP of both of those games. He is literally at the top of the heap when it comes to NFL players today. He's been in the news this week because on an interview last Monday night during the Monday night football game, he revealed That in 2018, when he was having one of his first starts, when he was brand new to the league, uh, his wife happened to have gotten him a present, and in the present, included in the present, was a pair of red underpants. He wore those red underpants to the game that day and threw for four touchdowns and 250 yards. Patrick Mahomes revealed last Monday night that he has worn those red underpants every game since then. (laughs) Now, later in the week... Is this like the strangest sermon you've all ever heard? We've been all over the place, haven't we? Later in the week, Mahomes clarified that he doesn't wear the red pants during the game, right? He, he, that would be crazy, right? He wears them to the game, right? He just wears them to the stadium that day before he gets changed in his uniform. He said, that way they'll last longer. <laughs> Can we just sit in that for a minute? <laughs> What what effect do you suppose Patrick Mahomes' underpants have on his ability to play football? (laughs) You can call it superstition if you want, but we all have a tendency to do things because we think they matter. We think they make a difference. But we're reminded today that all that really matters is God's faithfulness. I'm deeply suspicious that you and I are not nearly as responsible for our own fortune as we sometimes think we are. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that God's faithfulness is not dependent on my skill and my intellect. 
I'm so glad that God's faithfulness is not dependent on my ability to come up with a great idea. I'm so glad that God's faithfulness is about God and not about me. And I'm inclined to wonder today how many times I've acted like Jacob. How many times I think I've solved a problem with my own good idea without realizing how ridiculous and nonsensical my solution actually was. And yet, God is merciful. God is graceful. God is good. He is as good as his word. Passages like this one and a few others that we read today make it easy for us to laugh at Jacob's folly, have a good chuckle at his expense, it would be all too easy for us to come here and roll our eyes and just patronize him. Because what kind of a guy gets tricked into marrying his sister-in-law by mistake? What kind of guy uses his wife's personal assistant for family planning? What kind of guy thinks he can breed particular colors of sheep by wallpapering their mating spaces? Right? Like, nothing here strikes us as, as particularly intelligent or wise on Jacob's part. But who among us has not been tricked? Who among us has not acted foolishly at one point or another? Who among us, who among us has not come up with the wrong solution to our problems thinking we were doing a good job? Yet God has been faithful. He's been faithful. Isn't that the essence of the gospel? Isn't that the story that scripture tells? I want to turn your attention to the communion emblems that we have in our hands. And I want to remind you in this moment that going all the way back to the garden, God created us with promise. We've been talking a lot about the promise that that God gave to Abraham. But in this moment, I want to extend, I want to extend that. And remember that God all the way back in the garden was creating us with promise, wasn't he? That was the garden. And what happened next? We were deceived. We were lied to and we fell for it. What happened next? We acted like fools. What happened next? We tried to come up with our own solution. Oh, not just one. We've tried to solve the sin problem again and again and again. And all we've ever been is a wash in our own nonsense, completely unable to restore the brokenness in our relationship with God. It's literally Jacob's story. Deceived, foolish, and trying to solve the problem for ourselves. It's my story. It's your story. It's our story. And yet, God was faithful to his promise. I feel like I've said those words again and again and again and again over the last few weeks. You're an heir of the promise. God is faithful. God keeps his promises. Probably feel like I've said them again and again because, in fact, I've said them again and again. Does anything else really matter? Does anything else have any significance in our lives? It's only by the faithfulness of God. 
It's only because of his promises that we live and we breathe and we exist. The promises that we focused on in today's stories are the ones about, you know, the increase to to Abraham's family tree, the growth of the descendants and the father of many nations and and things like that. But there's, there's still promises to be told, aren't there? God said to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, he said, you and your descendants are going to be the conduit that I'm going to use to bless the world. Church, you have a purpose because you're an heir of the promise. And the enemy has come to deceive you. What does the the scripture call him? The father of lies. It's his native language, right? It's what he does. And if we're being honest with one another, sometimes he's succeeded in that. I've been duped. I've believed things that I thought were true and they weren't. I've stumbled. I've acted foolishly. I've made a mess of things. That's my testimony. And I think if you're being honest, it's yours too. But God has been faithful. God has been faithful. God has been faithful. In his faithfulness, he said to us, your solutions for this problem, this this sin problem, your solutions aren't going to work. You might as well be putting wallpaper up at a feeding trough for sheep. Your solutions aren't going to work. But he gave us a solution that would work. And that's how it came to pass that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus would sit at a table with his friends. How perfect that Kat would lead us this morning in a prayer for forgiveness. Because that's really necessary as we come to the table, isn't it? God, forgive us for the ways in which we have gone astray. Forgive us for the ways in which we have been unfaithful to the covenant, despite the fact that you have never been anything but faithful. Forgive us, Lord. (coughs) That's when Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's been broken for you. Would you take it and would you remember? Let's take it and remember. In the same way, when the meal ended, he took the cup. And he began talking about a solution. It wasn't our solution. It was God's solution. And it was one that we never could have come up with. It was a solution that involved spilled blood. Who would have thought of that? But he said, take the cup and drink it and do it in remembrance of me. Let's receive. Father, we receive your gift today. 
I pray that in this room right now, you would call even more unto yourself, such as should be saved. I pray, Lord, that those of us that have been crippled by the guilt of deception and of foolishness, I pray that we would receive instead the transformative power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. I pray, Lord, that we would no longer be uh, prone to believe the words of our lying enemy who will say, no, it's not for you, you can't be saved. I pray, Lord, that instead we would receive the gift of grace that comes to us only by your faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to repent of our habit of trying to solve our own problem, lest you may take notice. Instead, Lord, as the word says, that we would confess our sins, recognizing that you are faithful and just to forgive us. And Lord, we ask, we boldly ask today that the blessings and the promises of God would be unleashed upon us that they would pour out over us in this place today. We pray that the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God would be released in this place. And God, that you would do what you will do because we can't. We can't. But not only you can, you will. You will. You will. So bless us, sanctify us with the truth, empower and equip us, and send us forth for the mission you have for us. We ask it in the strong and sufficient name of Jesus our Savior, and everyone says, Amen. Amen. Be blessed today as you dismiss yourselves.